Good morning. This is Rising. Welcome back after the long holiday weekend. Uh, it was just too long for me, Brianna. I couldn't wait to get back at it, get back to uh, reading the news with you. As much as I enjoy your company, Robbie, I am so happy to have an extended three-day weekend. I'm excited to see there's uh, efforts to extend uh, permanent three-day weekends in at least one state in the United States ongoing oh. right now. I oh, hope they're my successful heart. and my heart. all across the country. No. And I'm very thankful for our forefathers for fighting for the labor gains that we have gotten so that we have any weekends at all. We're getting into our argument very early today. <laughs> this is a record. First 30 seconds. All right. Uh, first news story of the day. Yesterday, Dr. Anthony Fauci was pressed by CNN about a large study finding no evidence that masks slowed the spread of COVID-19. Let's watch. Uh, Brett Stevens in The Times talked about Cochrane. Put that on the screen. The most rigorous and comprehensive analysis of scientific studies conducted on the efficacy of masks for reducing the spread of respiratory illness, including COVID-19, was published last month. Its conclusions, said Tom Jefferson, the Oxford epidemiologist who is the lead author, were unambiguous. There is just no evidence that they, masks, make any difference, he told the journalist Mayanne Damasi, full stop. But wait, hold on, what about the N95 masks as opposed to the lower quality? Surgical or cloth masks makes no difference, none of it, he said. Well, what about the studies that initially persuaded policymakers to impose mask mandates? They were convinced by non-randomized studies, flawed observational studies. How do we get beyond that finding of that particular review? Yeah, but there are other studies, Michael, that show at an individual level for individual. When you're talking about the effect on the epidemic or the pandemic as a whole, the data are less strong. Now, Senator Rand Paul weighed in on this exchange. He tweeted, Fauci admits that masks don't work for the public at large, but still absurdly claims masks work on an individual basis. More subterfuge. Meanwhile, Internet sleuths wasted no time in digging up this interview of Dr. Fauci's from back in the earliest days of the pandemic. Right now, people should not be walking. There's no reason to be walking around with a mask. When you're in the middle of an outbreak, wearing a mask might make people feel a little bit better, and it might even block a, a droplet, but it's not providing the perfect protection that people think that it is. And often, there are unintended consequences. People keep fiddling with the mask and they keep touching their face. And can you get some schmutz sort of staying uh, 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 inside uh, uh, there? Of course, and... of course. But when you think masks, you should think of healthcare providers needing them and people who are ill. And of course, Fauci isn't the only one who's found themselves caught making the masking seesaw. It's likely to spread around the entire world. A lot of people are going to get it. Potentially most of the world's population are going to get it, which sounds terrible. But it, the, of most of the people who get coronavirus will not die from it. Okay. Um, it's got about a 2% fatality rate. Um, and the way that we all need to deal with it Although it is a, a new threat, we've never seen this virus before, it's actually very old-fashioned ways of protecting ourselves. You do all the things that you do to protect yourself from getting a cold or from getting the flu. We don't have to do anything outrageous. We don't need to change our lives drastically at an individual level. You just need to be more vigilant about washing your hands, make sure you don't develop patterns where you don't touch your face. Uh, that's the way that we tend to give ourselves colds in the flu. So at an individual level, there's no reason to panic, but it's a serious thing. I saw somewhere they said, don't sneeze or cough on people. I go, <laughs> were we doing that? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> were people doing that? New Year's resolution? <laughs> it's like, I'm going to stop, gotta stop coughing on people. I really am yeah, not getting invited back to parties. But. Yeah. I've seen a lot of the masks 
around the city. Is that a... That's probably not a, not a thing. Um, no. I mean, you're seeing it, but it's probably not that smart. The Surgeon General actually put out a statement which was like, you guys, stop buying masks. Oh, yeah, I, mean, I saw that. If you are sick, if you have respiratory symptoms, that's, people are wearing a mask in that circumstance because you're trying to avoid giving it to other people. Gotcha. But in terms of being a healthy person and trying to avoid getting infected, that's probably not, not that rational. Commentator Glenn Greenwald weighed in on the whole masking controversy. He tweeted, there's one clear lesson from history. It's that no one should be trusted with the power to decree truth and falsity to the point that dissent from their decree is criminalized or even banned. It's particularly true of U.S. media elites who have endorsed every destructive lie for 20 years. I think he also noted that um, some of the things that Fauci and Maddow said in those clips were soon after prohibited from being said on social media. Mm. Now, the Cochrane uh, Institute behind the mass study in question came out in the spring of this year and actually released a statement reading, quote, many commentators have claimed that a recently updated Cochrane review shows that masks don't work, which is an, an accurate and misleading interpretation. Given the limitations in the primary evidence, the review is not not able to address the question of whether mask wearing itself reduces people's risk of contracting or spreading respiratory viruses. So what, what do you, I, I want to get to the, the, the fact of the authors of the study that's mm -hmm. being cited for the proposition that masks don't work, in fact, disagreeing with the reading of the study. But first, just this issue of both Fauci's uh, early 2020 statement and Rachel Maddow's early 2020 statements that we just played. My understanding was we all agreed here on this program and the public consensus was that they took that stance not because of the perceived efficacy of masks, but because they were very actively trying to prevent a run on the bank, as it were, mm -hmm. and that they believe that masks, there was a shortage of them. There were these supply chain issues. Medical professionals needed them more than lay people who were being encouraged simply to social distance and stay home, and that they were mis actively, purposefully misleading the public in order to preserve masks for the people who they felt needed them more, not because they did not believe in the efficacy of masks, in fact, because they do believe in the efficacy of masks and that those masks should be preserved for use right. by health professionals. I mean, if that uh, that is uh, what a lot of people think is, there, is what Fauci was doing there, even so, I don't think that's very... Um, um, a positive, I mean, he's just admitting that he lied. No, that's I agree. That's what's so confusing to me about all of the debates about masking. If you're mad at that, which I am, because I believe that masks work as an, on an individual level, and we can get into that in a second, I am frustrated that public health officials would mislead us, would lie to us about the efficacy of masks instead of just being straight with us about the fact that we should try to not hoard them the same way that they tell us openly, we'll try not to hoard um, toilet paper or a hand sanitizer or the store will put limits on how many you are going to buy. I would much prefer that kind of a transparent approach than lying about masks. What they, we now have is these now, there's now three years later, trickle down effect where people don't know what to believe because they have actively misrepresented people in the past. But if you were someone who doesn't believe that masks work, I don't understand why you would point to those particular clips right. as evidence of what? Because the, what, they're, what they're actually arguing there is that masks work so well that they should be keeping them for health professionals, which is completely consistent with the later view that Well, no, I mean, what Rachel, Maddow, what Rachel Maddow said in that clip, which then, again, immediately gets thrown out the window because then all, you know, public-facing liberal media Democrats switch to wear masks all times really good, what she says there which is accurate is that, look, you know, if you're ill, if you're sick, if you're coughing and sneezing, you wearing a mask 
is a good idea. And like, and that's still true. Yeah, absolutely. If you have to go out for some reason and you're sick with COVID, mm -hmm. yeah, put on a mask. Sure. That's like still a good idea. Um, Why there's is it a, a good lot idea? of questions so that you don't spread the, the particles. So masks have an ability to stop particles from spreading? So they yeah, the, that's and that's why the claim that Cochrane puts back pushes back on the, the the claim that like masks don't work at all. But what is true and what the Cochrane review shows is that three years into this pandemic, we don't have the really robust evidence we'd like to see that masks did a lot of good to stop the spread of the pandemic at a societal level. Right. We have not turned up that research. Um, and, and in fact, we found that the masks that most people were wearing for most of the pandemic, the ones that all the people the experts recommended, really don't do very much at all. There's now a debate about whether the really high quality masks, if they're worn perfectly by expert people, maybe they are blocking some significant amount of, of droplets or respiratory particles. Again, I don't know that that's really been borne out so definitively by studies. There are some studies suggesting that. So I, I, that's, that's a, I think that's a potential finding out there. I think it's at the level of people do their own research and should make what decisions they want. I don't think we've found no reason to believe that like toddlers wearing cloth masks in schools are going to like lower the incident of COVID whatsoever. Given that there's so much nuance in this conversation and that there's so many studies that have shown positive indications that using a whole host of what they call um, uh, NPIs, non-pharmaceutical in interventions, which include both masking, social distancing, um, uh, good ventilation, things like that, in tandem, do in fact have a positive effect on the spread of the virus uh, or limiting the spread of the virus. That it is, do you think that it's dangerous and dare I say even misinformation for so many people to be heralding this study and others as evidence that point blank period masks don't work and to be castigating Fauci for trying to in inject some nuance back in the conversation to say, well, on an individual basis, if you do use the right mask, if you do use them adequately, not take them off and fidget and it's well fitted and all these other kinds of things and it is used in these other kinds of, in these specific I mean, kind of contexts. Fauci should be casti castigated for misleading the public anyway, even if he, what his private belief was that masks are very important. That's not my question, Robbie. I have joined readily and heartily in criticizing Fauci where it's deserved. But what I'm seeing here is a number of people accusing Fauci for being wrong and misleading the public about saying that there is nuance in what these studies have shown and that masking is useful, particularly on an individual level, individualized meaning it's not group, the, the effect on group populations where there have been mask mandates versus not mask mandates or mask, mask compliance versus not have not been demonstrated. However, right. on an individual level, that's a different story. That's what he's saying there. That doesn't seem to me to be wrong. And yet we've saw a number of clips of people taking this opportunity to pounce on Fauci for this particular clip. Does that not strike you as misinformation going in the other direction? No, I mean, it's showing that, so either he said something that he knew to not be the case, or he said something and was wrong, because again, shortly after this, it became like literally disallowed to say those things Wait that he was saying in social so media and- it, it sounds like, again, you're criticizing the Fauci from early 2020. And I agree, mm -hmm. he lied to the public when he told them that masks weren't useful and ineffective. But I don't understand the, how you could say- the kind of say, masks they then recommended were, use, were useless and ineffective. Okay. They later I, conceded. I, I completely agree with that. So you don't think there's gonna be a pivot years from now where they say, and even the better masks didn't work that well. Like- Who's you, the you they? The, the health establishment, the expert, they've changed their they've changed their minds 
both based, perhaps based on trying to manipulate public opinion and lies, also because of new information evidence. What, what a right-thinking liberal is supposed to think about masks has changed three times throughout the pandemic. I'm not sure that the changing is over yet. When, do when Dr. Fauci told people not to wear masks in the early part of the pandemic, was that based on a scientific study, a survey, research of what had been happening in the course of the pandemic? No. The pandemic had just started. He wasn't citing any scientific research. So if you're asking me, do I trust Anthony Fauci, who, by the way, is no longer employed by the federal government mm -hmm. implicitly? No, I do not. But the question here is whether Fauci is accurately articulating the results of a scientific study. I do think that all we have is a bunch of scientific studies that we should all compare to each other and vet and scrutinize closely. Right. The, but, that will, but that will continue to come out over the course of the next couple of years. Sure. And that might change based on different scientific criteria, evaluation of criteria, and we just all have to figure I, out what's going I, on. I, that's absolutely what I expect. And based on this study to. and this other study out of the, the Royal Society report that just came out earlier this or last month as well, they seem to not be saying what so many of these conservative and libertarian critics are saying. Take Fauci out of it. They're saying masks don't work. That is not what these studies are saying. That, for example, this um, this recent uh, Royal Society report that concluded masks aren't a panacea, that's for sure. But they said um, uh, they reviewed evidence gathered during the pandemic for six groups of, of MPI, non-pharmaceutical intervention, so mass social distancing, et cetera, and their effectiveness in reducing transmission. These included mass and face covering, social distancing, lockdowns, testing, test, trace, and isolate, travel restrictions, controls across international borders, environmental controls, and communications. When assessed individually, there was positive, if limited, limited evidence of transmission reduction for many of the MPIs used in the pandemic. However, evidence of positive effect was clear when countries used combinations of MPIs. Okay, so it's not a panacea. Wearing a mask is not going to prevent you completely from getting COVID. But it's, it's, it's the obvious contradiction in the analysis from, from you, I got to say, it's is obvious. You're going to say wearing a mask outside to prevent your, you from spreading COVID to others is useful. Yes. But not the other, it has absolutely no effect in transmission the other way around. This Routinely is just, masking healthy people but, does not have a large enough social benefit. But that is not the benefit. question. That you, is the question. That's no. the question for if you're going to mandate masks on people. Right. If you're going to mandate masks. Well, that's we're, all we're trying to stave off. I don't care what people do on their own. about mandates. Sure I, I, we are. <laughs> Their mandates got struck down by the Supreme Court last summer. We're not having a conversation about mandates. We're Mask not. Mask mandates? No, the vaccine mandates got struck the, down. Sorry, you're right. The yes. vaccine mandates did get struck down. I mean, so on so, a national level, no, but, but we're... But here, here's, here's the only point I'm trying to make, Robbie. If I'm in a rain... If, if I were, you know, mm -hmm. if it might stop a droplet somewhere, okay. I understand that that's the limited use of a mask. If I turn a fire hose on somebody's face wearing a mask, obviously their face is going to get wet. And that's what Fauci and these studies are saying, that these, these kind of interventions are most useful in early in the pandemic when the viral content in the air is relatively low. Once it starts to get high to a certain point, because of the failure rate of the mask, if there's too much of it in the air, eventually the it's going to get through. particles in the air? Eventually it's going to, in, in high concentrated areas, which is why a lot of people have been talking about nursing homes, hospitals, those kind of areas, it might make more mm -hmm. sense to continue to have mask well, mandates hospitals as opposed have to other- sick people in them. They, right. they, have, they have a disproportionately large amount of sick people in them. Exactly. So there's going to be more viral load in the yeah. air. Yes, 100%. That is exactly the whole point. Yeah. In addition, you might also point to other kinds of areas where there's just a lot of people in a very small, unventilated, controlled space where you might want to have similar conversations about the efficacy of masks. But it is context-dependent, the same way that wearing a mask um, when, you are very, when you're sick 
the idea is you have such an obviously high viral load yourself because you have COVID right. that even if some of it gets out, it is useful to the population to be able to keep the bulk of it in. And Right. I, but that will be. But I'm fine with that intervention. So that interve- that, that's not controversial. That intervention is on sick people. That's fine. We d- but we're trying to avoid because there is not sufficiently robust evidence to to state that requiring mass on the population at large has a discernible effect on the trajectory of the pandemic. And, and studies, that's all we're trying and to prevent. Say, they, they acknowledge that. They, yeah. That, but they do this. At least this study in particular acknowledges that using all of these things in tandem do have an effect on the spread of the pandemic, especially in the early stages of it. So yeah, but we don't. To the that could be the people, ventilation, doing the heavy lifting. That sure, could be. we should have all of those things in effect if you want to limit the spread of the pandemic. This is what this evidence shows. So I would make it want to make it very clear to people who are watching that if you are sick. If you are particularly vulnerable, you shouldn't take any of these proclamations by um, people like what was it, Rand Paul, who are de- declaring wrongly, falsely, um, out of step with every scientific recommendation in study that the fa- masks fundamentally don't work. Um, they could be misleading people who are vulnerable into lowering their risk threshold and not wearing masks in a way that can cause a lot of public health damage. They're limited. The same way that Fauci lying to people about masks early in the pandemic could have had a negative public. It's health not misleading outcome. people to say that. We've run a bunch of studies and it's kind of ambiguous, but we're not seeing really robust, great data on routine use of masks. But that's not what he said. He said masks don't work, period. All right, we'll have more rising right after this. Robbie, what's on your radar today? Well, for the Proud Boys, the hammer has fallen. Joe Biggs, a leader of the far-right male organization, received a 17-year sentence last week for his activities during the January 6th Capitol riots. Zachary Rail got 15 years, and Enrique Tario, the group's chairman, will be sentenced today. He was similarly convicted of seditious conspiracy to obstruct the 2020 election certification and other serious crimes earlier this year. Now, while 17 and 15 years constitute lengthy prison sentences, that's actually considerably shorter than what the government requested. Prosecutors wanted 33 years for Biggs and 30 for Rail. That's in keeping with the government's view that they committed acts of terrorism. The prosecution asked U.S. District Judge Timothy Kelly to apply a terrorism enhancement to the sentence. Quote, Biggs committed a crime of terrorism on January 6th, and the court should hold, should not hesitate to impose a sentence that reflects the seriousness of the crime and its threat to our nation, as reflected in the sentencing guidelines, wrote the prosecutors in their sentencing recommendation document. Now, in court, prosecutors argued that their actions, the actions of those defendants, certainly constituted terrorism because, though January 6th did not involve widespread destruction, exploding buildings, mass casualties, its impact on the nation's collective scarring is like that of a terrorist attack. Assistant U.S. Attorney Jason McCullough argued that the psychological fallout from January 6th is, quote, no different than the act of a spectacular bombing of a building, end quote. Now, the judge quibbled slightly with this argument, accusing prosecutors of overstating their case. But ultimately, he agreed in principle that, quote, while blowing up a building in some city somewhere is very bad act, the constitutional moment we were in that day is something that is so sensitive that it deserves a significant sentence. Uh, This doesn't seem overly scientific to me. Prosecutors said Biggs committed an act of terrorism akin to blowing up a building, and he should get 33 years in prison. The judge said... Well, that's sort of an exaggeration, so how about half that? (laughs) 
Biggs and other January 6th participants undoubtedly committed crimes, to be clear. Vandalism, trespassing, in some cases violence against police officers, and for my say, they should absolutely be held accountable for the mayhem that they caused. But prosecutors who implicitly accused them of staging something along the lines of another 9-11 have gotten way over their skis. Many Americans have understandable, deep embarrassment over the spectacle of January 6th, and rightly so. But they do not consider the riot to be anywhere near as serious as a blown-up building. The government came down extra hard on Biggs because he's a leader of the Proud Boys and also because he has military training. He should have known, in their view, that he was in a unique position to actually provoke violence and destruction as he led the crowd to the barricades and tore down parts of the fencing. Now, again, inarguably committed crimes and should, in fact, face the consequences for them. But rounding up his actions to terrorism is frankly giving the Proud Boys' plans more credit than they deserve. Broken windows and defiled deaths were never going to prevent Joe Biden from taking office. If there was a conspiracy to steal the election, it unfolded in the weeks leading up to January 6th as President Donald Trump and his acolytes allegedly attempted to interfere with electoral processes underway in the states. What occurred on January 6th was a largely spontaneous burst of property destruction and limited violence that interrupted Congress's certification of the votes. A riot, for sure, not a planned insurrection. As my colleague at Reason, Jacob Sullum, wrote when Biggs and Tario were first convicted, quote, the term insurrection implies a level of planning and organization that does not fit the chaotic reality of what happened that day. 17 years, 15 years, extremely long times in prison, only the worst of the worst, frankly. The most dangerous and irredeemable sort of people deserve to languish in prison for that length of time. It does the country no good to pretend that what transpired on January 6th was a terrorist attack highly and effectively organized by a paramilitary group that came within striking distance of actually preventing the peaceful transfer of power. That is magical thinking of a kind that has transfixed the mainstream media, the Democratic Party, and national law enforcement, who all believe that far-right fraternal organizations coordinated to engage in a planned attack on the nation's capital with the goal of keeping Trump in power. But no matter how desperately they believe that's what happened, it isn't. Take it from me, I was actually there. I was covering the gathering on the Capitol steps for Reason Magazine at the time. What I saw was largely First Amendment protected protesting that then got totally out of hand, absolutely Trump's fault for inflaming the crowd with his speech, and then culminating in an actual riot where some in the crowd smashed windows, fought with cops, and rampaged throughout the halls of Congress. It was extremely bad, and everyone who broke the law should face the appropriate consequences, and Trump should face the consequences. But we're re rewriting our own history when we pretend that the Capitol was under siege by an armed group with an actual plan to take over the government. Yeah, I completely agree that the most significant criminal behavior that there's evidence for was uh, committed by Donald Trump and his associates, uh, his, his uh, people who were indicted along with him in this uh, most recent Georgia indictment. The alleged conspiracy to uh, submit fake slates of electors in seven states across the country um, that was intended to culminate in enough confusion that Mike Pence could ostensibly take advantage of and say, well, we're going to ignore all of these votes and get the House to decide who is going to be president of the United States instead of the people of the Republic is a much more significant crime than what anybody committed on 1-6. Moreover, the people on 1-6 were very much misled uh, by Donald Trump and his cohort as to the legitimacy of claims yes. of election fraud across the state. 
and that's being validated in the courts right now as we see that he's going to have to pay this defamation judgment to the two women um, uh, poll workers in Georgia, who they really launched a campaign against that got them uh, harassed, they had to leave their homes, et cetera, accusing them of stuffing ballot boxes and the like, which never, in fact, right. happened. So this does seem to be a misdirection, and as someone who has been consistently against uh, mass criminalization of people, ratcheting up of criminal penalties, the, uh, incar the carceral state, the fact that we have a larger percent of our country incarcerated uh, than anybody else in the world, including nations that we describe as authoritarian like China, these kind of excessively long sentences are certainly not something that I would support either. Um, I also feel this way, of course, about people who were Black Lives Matter protesters that got disproportionately long sentences, people who were victims of three-strike rules, people who languished in prison for years because of the crack cocaine sentencing disparity, people who languish in prison right now uh, who have not been convicted of crimes because of cash bail standards, which enable rich people to pay bail and get out while they're awaiting trial, while poor people, regardless of their innocence or guilt, have to languish in prisons, sometimes dying in prison prior to ever being convicted of a crime. Uh, and I just hope that if anything mm -hmm. can come of this, it's that the way that these 1-6 protesters are uh, being treated uh, encourages many people on the right to join in with some of the um, movements uh, against mass incarceration that has been spearheaded and led uh, by the left for so long. And against, you know, knee-jerk describing everything as terrorism, um, mm -hmm. because the, the extra and substantial penalties and prison sentences when something gets described as terrorism by prosecutors is—it's uh, massive. And you see what happened here, which is just, they said, yeah, this is terrorism, so that's why we're asking for, you know, 30 years. And the judge is like, it's kind of terrorism 15. Like, that's just— Well, that's, 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 that's how sentencing yeah. goes. No, no, it's, I know. It's and, very and, and that's going to be applied to all sorts of—well, and, and I know that, you know, there are many criminally ju criminal justice-minded um, people on, on the left and in progressive circles who have uh, for a long time fought these kinds of things. Um, but then I, you know, I did see, um, when I testified uh, before Congress some years back about, um, about uh, hate crimes and hate crime statistics, uh, that, you know, there were questions from AOC and the other squad members about why uh, you know, more things are not being properly classified as terrorism. And uh, you know, you, you, this is where it's going to lead is, is Black Lives Matter protests, anti-police protesters, cop city protesters, right? They're all being, they're all being, the cop city people are all being RICO'd actually yes. under Georgia's RICO statute, which is related to what, you know, which you can think rightly or wrongly, uh, happening to Trump and his associates. So it's uh, Yeah, across the state, across the country rather, they have been aggressively ratcheting up uh, penalties for uh, environmental protests, chaining themselves to pipelines and trees, uh, causing damage to infrastructure, those kinds of crimes which are, you don't have to agree with them, but are not right. harmful to human beings right. in the least. Uh, are getting people jail uh, sentences yeah. that are commensurate with folks who have committed murder or raped children right. and things like that. Uh, Jessica Resniak, I think, got a nine-year sentence for participating in a, in a, a stop oil pipeline uh, protest. It's also worth noting there was this interesting case of Crystal Mason back in 2016, who unwittingly, she was, um, she had been convicted of a felony tax crime and didn't realize that she wasn't allowed to vote in her state. Of course, it changes state by state. And so she cast a vote in 2016 and was sentenced to six years in jail, unknowingly 
you know, because she unknowingly voted in an election. And so I do think that we have to yeah. have a wide view of aggressively harsh sentencing practices and also look at the role that certain conservatives are playing as they argue that the reason that there is there is crime in certain urban areas is because of lax sentencing. There has been a real push, a tough on crime push from conservatives to say, if you live in a place like San Francisco or Chicago, these the, the cities that keep being brought up over and over again, despite the murder rates being much higher in many Southern cities, that if you live there, it's because progressive prosecutors haven't been having long enough sentences for people who have committed crimes. That, that argument is obviously in tension with the understanding here that there has been a increase in sentencing um, that is disproportionate and, I would argue, wrong. So people are going to have to wrestle with those two realities. Sure. Although, I mean, in fairness to the tough on crime view, I think their their argument, and it's different in every district, is that um, people aren't being prosecuted at all. And I think, and I think the, the people For who participated— For things like drug crimes that many of us believe well, should I don't be illegal in the first yeah, place. I think shoplifting is more what we're—if we're talking about sure. progressive prosecutors not bringing charges um, or, or weapons—I mean, weapons charges— um, I think the January 6th people, they should be charged. They should serve time. I mean, they have served time, but most of them have been in prison this whole yeah, time. Yeah, because the nature of it is that you have to yeah. stay in prison, um, yeah, when you're but, not convicted uh, yet. But, yeah, 30, 30 years, 17 years, 15 years, these are sentences for murderers. Yeah. All right, we'll have more Rising right after this. seems Elon Musk has a new foe in the crosshairs. The tech CEO threatened to sue the Anti-Defamation League after blaming the organization for an advertising revenue slump on X, formerly known as Twitter. Musk accused the ADL of, quote, trying to kill the platform by falsely accusing it and him of being anti-Semitic. He continued, to clear our platform's name on the matter of anti-Semitism, it looks like we have no choice but to file a defamation lawsuit against the Anti-Defamation League. Oh, the irony. To be super clear, I'm pro-free speech, but against anti-Semitism of any kind. Our U.S. advertising revenue is still down 60%, primarily due to pressure on advertisers by the ADL. That's what advertisers tell us, so they almost succeeded in killing ex-Twitter. Friend of the show, Batya Angar Sargon, reacted to the lawsuit news, tweeting, So much for free speech. Apparently, it doesn't extend to an organization warning advertisers that Twitter is full of anti-Semites, which it is. Journalist Glenn Greenwald weighed in on the matter, writing, One of the most toxic and repellent developments over the last decade is the aggressive but cynical weaponization of various strains of bigotry accusations for cheap partisan gain, to justify censorship, one's adversaries, and to coerce compliance. Few are more guilty than the ADL. The Anti-Defamation League published a report in May that found over 5,000 examples of allegedly virulent anti-Semitism on Twitter after accounts were reinstated under Elon Musk, and an ADL spokesperson said in an emailed statement to Axios that the nonprofit doesn't comment on legal threats as a matter of policy, but had this to say on the platform status on X. ADL is unsurprised yet undeterred that anti-Semites, white supremacists, conspiracy theorists, and other trolls have launched a coordinated attack on our organization. This type of thing is nothing new. Yeah, I think it is true what Glenn Greenwald has said. Um, there have been many times when the ADL uh, and its current leadership have been accused of weaponizing, I think accurately, weaponizing claims of anti-Semitism against political actors that they simply don't like because of their advocacy for Palestinian rights. Um, we've seen that in a lot of the kerfuffles over various elected representatives on the left in Congress. But in this instance, it's interesting to see even people who themselves have been victims of ADL attacks um, uh, 
speaking out, saying that this is an obviously bad faith attack uh, against the ADL by Elon Musk. So you have someone like Mark Lamont Hill, who I believe was let go from his job on MSNBC because of, of charges exactly of anti-Semitism, saying that, quote, Elon Musk's attack on the ADL is dangerous, dishonest, and deeply anti-Semitic. He turned his platform into an unprofitable white supremacist cesspool. Instead of taking accountability, he has chosen to not so subtly scapegoat Jews, which invites violence from his Nazi base. Um, on the other side of things, you know, libs of TikTok has encouraged this lawsuit. People believe that the the, the uh, disclosures that would happen in the course of filing this lawsuit might really help Elon's case. Other people say, be careful what you wish for, as we've seen in the um, Fox News uh, lawsuit case. All kinds of things that are disfavorable can come out in, in discovery. I, I don't know. What, what do you make of this? Well, look, as a matter of law and policy, I'm not a big fan of frivolous um, lawsuits over speech. Um, I, I would have to look more closely at exactly what Elon Musk is accusing the ADL of that he thinks is defamatory. But I would be very not inclined to agree with a lawsuit being merited. Um, in general, I, I, you know, I, we were on the different sides of the Dominion thing. I didn't really necessarily know that they should bring a lawsuit against that either. So, on, in terms of bringing a lawsuit, I likely strongly disagree with Elon Musk here. That said, I do not put a lot of faith in. Well, I mean, this is, you were agreeing with this, so it's not counter what you're saying at all. But I, and I've actually I've dug even deeper into the the um, not just the Anti Defamation League statements, but it's um, it's published statistics about anti Semitic hate crimes that are wildly misleading and are frequently mischaracterized in, in the media, even when their underlying uh, study is not wrong. I remember writing about this. I just pulled this up. So this was all the way back in. Um, so this was about their. This was in 2017 or 2018. It was about their 2016 report. Uh, or their, about their 2017 report on um, on a, a purported 60% spike in anti-Semitic attacks, and this was written about in the New York Times. It was written about in the Washington Post. Um, I remember Julia Ioffe on CNN said that based on this study, Trump has radicalized more people than ISIS ever did, um, citing the ADL report on this 60% increase in anti-Semitic attacks. Then you look at what they're actually describing. Well, not, it's not actually attacks. It's anti-Semitic incidents, the majority of which, uh, so a lot of the increase is um, a supposedly anti-Semitic valence of school incidents. Also, a campaign of bomb threats that were made, that it turned out the person making the bomb threats was an Israeli, a deranged Israeli teenager. And then the actual category of anti-Semitic violence had actually gone down. It had gone well, down that that's year. Interesting and those statistics are wielded by a, the ADL and their allies in such bad faith. So I, I, w without knowing the specifics of what they're telling advertisers here, it would not surprise me at all if the picture they're painting is, does, bears no resemblance to reality. It does seem to me that violence isn't really the issue here. This is a social media platform that people Mm -hmm. apparently don't want to advertise on anymore because people are saying anti-Semitic and racist and otherwise bigoted things on the app. So this isn't a question of whether or not there's actually been more hate crimes or stochastic terrorism or mm -hmm. anything like that. It is whether or not there is a greater incidence of even if it's largely superficial, doesn't actually hurt anybody. Language, which is so toxic that advertisers feel like it's bad for their brand to use this But the ADL website. is the mediator, right? It's the one telling the advertisers that these things have increased uh, and that there's more of them. Uh, according to Elon Musk, I think they're, just, they're saying it out loud in the world, but here's the evidence the ADL has put out there. 
Um, this is from an article in the New York Times uh, from earlier this year. It says, the Anti-Defamation League, which files regular reports of anti-Semitic tweets to Twitter and keeps track of which posts are removed, so the company has gone from taking action on 60 percent of tweets it reported to only 30 percent. Now, you can think that every single thing that they reported was wrong and that Elon Musk should not take action on those tweets because it's free speech and they should stay up. But that's not exactly the question here. The question is, is there going to be a refutation of the underlying claim that they are taking few, less action on these no. tweets? Advertisers don't care about free speech. The advertisers right. might want a world where they are taking more action on the kind of what tweets if, that the ADL finds but, to be upsetting. Right. But what if, what if Elon Musk, what if X is taking less action on the tweets because the ADL was flagging your tweets criticizing the state of Israel as anti-Semitic, or the, maybe it but, was correct. Maybe their view of what is anti-Semitic was prove, wrong. What they would have to prove is that the ADL is making more submissions, and that that accounts for a lower reply rate. If, in fact, the ADL is making a similar amount of submissions yeah. and the, the Twitter is acting on fewer of those submissions, then you can think that Twitter is in the right in doing so, but they don't—they have to deal with the consequences that advertisers might want them to take down more of what the ADL perceives to be hate speech. Right. And that's just—that's that's a, well, a financial decision that Elon Musk is making. Do you care more about what the advertise—if the advertisers and the ADL's interests are happen to be aligned here? But we're, we're saying— we're saying the ADL, again, I don't know specifically, but it would not surprise me given their long history of exaggerating these statistics, which I've reported on, the, we're saying the, the accusation is that the ADL is misrepresenting the state of anti-Semitism as they are wont to do on, that they were filing, just like, just, like ever, just like the State Department and everyone else saying, take action on these Russian bots, on this Russian misinformation, on this election denial, and it's actually jokes or satire or not Russian accounts, right, just but, as the, the, the watchdog the groups have been discredited on. I, I, right, I, they I, were before, they were, before the company was taking down all these things because they were just doing what the agencies or the watchdogs or the hate crime trackers or the State Department wanted them to do, and now they've stopped, and, and, and right. now they're not doing it because they have new management, and those requests were, were not in good faith and were not Okay, credible. but the point is, I'm not, this isn't about the quality of the requests. This is about the fact that they are not taking action on the request. By Elon Musk's own admission, they're not taking as much action on these requests because they think it's more free speechy. Great. But there are consequences. No, it, might not, it might not be just, it, no, it might not be because it's more free speechy. It's because these requests are not Fine. credible. Fine, they're not credible. But the advertisers want him to take them down. So Elon Musk is living in a, in a world. Because the ADL tells them that. Wait, what? The, the, the advertisers are not, are not like tracking the tweets. The ADL is the tweet tra tracking organization that they rely on. No. And we're saying the organization <laughs> they rely on no, is no, a no. bad organization. There are multiple tweet tracking organizations who have reported about an, an increased incidence in hate crimes. Uh, for example, uh, and I just one, explained to you why they're wrong, why, why, they, no, why, you, in the, why they have a history of, of exaggerating it. The, you've been talking about the ADL. There's yes. been reporting of other groups that are not the ADL and not affiliated with the ADL who have pointed to an increase in hate crimes on the app. The State Department? The, I mean, I, I, so these organizations, look, no, I'd have to State look at Department. it specifically, but these organizations don't, do not deserve, a lot of them, obviously I have to look at specifically what the organization is, but some, you know, some disinformation watchdog group that says, you know, there's, that Russian propaganda is all over the site and nothing's being done about that, that doesn't raise your eyebrows at this point? I don't 
you sitting here saying, well, everybody who comes up with any information must be the deep state I mean, and anti-speech. How many times do they have to be discredited before uh, we I, say I, that maybe advertisers shouldn't listen to them? I don't know. I get a little tired of being waking up and seeing the N-word a million day, times a day on the internet. But hey, that's just my subjective view. Maybe everything's exactly the same as it always is. But Elon Musk has literally told us. He has told us that he's taking less action on things that used to be taken down. Yeah. It is perfectly fine to think that he's in the right. Fine. You think that all that stuff is free speech? Let it be on the app. But That's you don't not get what to I'm saying. I'm not saying I think it's all free speech. I'm saying the people saying these things should be taken down have lost Robbie, their credibility. If you think, say it's me. Say it's yeah. someone censoring, someone, the ADL would have said, Brianna's not allowed to say free Palestine. Right. And now Brianna that, that is allowed to That very well could free, have been free. the case. That's fine. But if the Advertisers don't want me to say free Palestine and choose not to advertise but that's not on the, the that app. That is not the case. That is manifestly, I, you are misrepresenting the case. I, I, the ADL is telling the advertiser that there is anti-Semitism, and what they mean is you saying free Palestine. So I'm not talking about the ADL. I don't. The know advertiser doesn't. They don't that. care about if free Palestine. They, they don't care one way. They it care about humoring what the ADL tells them. They're not seeing the actual content. The organization is. It was an analogy that I raised because you insisted that we're talking about stuff that is legitimate speech. So I've made an analogy that is using an example that I obviously find to be legitimate speech because right. I'm but saying it. But it's a your point because the advertisers are not seeing I don't, that I, You keep moving the goalposts, Robbie. Make up your own analogy. The point is that whatever the information, no matter how legitimate, the point is that if the, if the advertisers agree that it should not, that they don't get to sell their products as much and it's not beneficial for them to be on the app if that stuff is being taken down. If some of what Elon Musk is leaving up is offensive to advertisers, then he is gonna lose money. And that's not the ADL's fault, it's the advertiser's it fault. Is. So for example, not the ADL, a group called the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, a think tank that studies online pro, uh, platforms, found according to the uh, New York Times that uh, the lack of action extends to new accounts, um, the lack of action taken by Elon Musk as owner of Twitter, extends to new accounts affiliated with terror groups that uh, other Twitter, other, and others that Twitter previously banned. In the first 12 days after Musk assumed control, 450 accounts associated with ISIS were created, up 69% from the previous 12 days. Um, uh, and, on, and on and on and on. We have reported on, it is not conjecture that when you go and you email to report issues with Twitter now, um, you get a bounce back often of a poop emoji because so many um, people who used to be responding to those kind of requests uh, were fired. That is the you know, belief. They have, you know, and, and they're just gonna have to deal with this. Um, Twitter also has had very obvious public relations issues in April, they mistakenly gave a gold check mark, which is supposed to signify a paying advertiser, to the at Disney Junior UK account, which Disney doesn't own. That account posted racial slurs, leading Disney officials to demand from Twitter an explanation and insurances that it wouldn't happen again. This is all reporting from two different articles in the New York Times about this. So we don't really have to speculate. There have been own goals repeatedly executed by Elon Musk himself choosing to allow um, Kanye West to come back to the app. Frankly, a move that I kind of supported because I thought that banning him was not in line with his own stated Twitter policies is gonna have an effect on advertisers because we have been talking on and on about this being a free speech issue when it in fact is not. At the end of the day, he bought a business that was worth $44 billion that is now worth half that because 90% of Twitter, Twitter revenue was about advertisers. So if you wanna buy an app to make it an open free, free speech bastion, that's great. Maybe I as a journalist not, like and support not that. The, that's not the issue here. 
That's just not the issue. The advertisers can do whatever they want. If they don't want to advertise on Twitter, sorry, Elon Musk. You, nobody, you can't sue anybody to make them advertise. That's the, if, if they want, the platform is not the way they want it to be, and they don't want to be involved with it, there's literally nothing you can do about that. But I, what I'm saying is the middleman here, the, the, the watchdogs, the trackers, the, I mean, there's nothing, again, I don't think they should be sued. I think they get to say false things and categorize people incorrectly and make lists of people and say all these people should be unpersoned and canceled even when they're, because they're ISIS, even if they're just telling jokes or their satire accounts. They get to do that. But I, we also get to call them out, and people like us and like Glenn Greenwald and other you know, dissident, contrarian-type people on the internet are increasingly onto their game that they, are, that they, they ha should not be viewed as credibly as they've been viewed in the past. You brought up this, I just looked them up, it's not surprising, the Institute for Strategic Dialogue. They work with a number of Western governments, Canada, Norway, the Netherlands, Germany, the UK, and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and also, like, it's the same grouping of people who, who would qualify us as Rush agents of Russian misinformation. So, like, I'm sorry if I'm not just, like, immediately buying into the idea that if they make a list of ISIS accounts and say, yeah, if, you're, if you don't get rid of all of these, you're a pro-ISIS uh, pro network and Twitter shouldn't have, you shouldn't advertise on Twitter anymore. Like, I just don't, maybe that's the case. I'd have to look at more specifically exactly what accounts they want banned. But how many times do we have to find that these organizations, which are run through with government funding, are not actually serving the best interests of policing hate or misinformation or all that stuff? And again, that's not my argument. My argument is not that the claims, the, the desire to get the things pulled down are legitimate and good faith. Or but isn't that, that the meaty part of this? I don't, we're, we're talking past each other. I don't know. As I was saying, my argument is not that the stuff is being taken down is legitimate. The question is whether or not Elon Musk's claim that the ADL of all the organizations that have made accusations that Twitter is a more hostile, more racist, more bigoted place than it was under the previous leadership is responsible for his radical dip in revenues, and not multiple different organizations who have assessed what many people have personally experienced, which is an increase in hateful language, the likes of which the average advertiser doesn't want to have their stuff alongside. And Elon Musk personally has boosted content. You can like libs of TikTok, but the average advertiser doesn't want their product associated with a site that is targeting historically marginalized groups the way that hit libs of TikTok does. You can agree with their politics, but you cannot coerce Nike to want to be associated with Elon Musk in an app that he is increasingly and purposefully and obviously, he says that out loud, wanting to move in a more rightward direction. Not in a neutral direction, but explicitly in a more rightward direction. And you're going to, you're suing the ADL all day and night is not going to make that the perception of advertisers that that is what Twitter has become any less real. It's, it's the ADL giving those advertisers that perception, and I'm questioning whether that's fair given the ADL's track record and organizations like it of looking at these issues. But I don't care if the, the advertisers yes, do whatever they want. It's all the ADL and not at all Elon Musk letting his friend uh, Kanye West back on the app after tweeting uh, a bunch of anti-Semitic tweets in a row saying, we're going to go DEFCON 3 on the Jews. I mean, you know, the, the ADL and organizations like them do contact all that and say, hey, why are you advertising right. on that? Here, yeah, look, here's yeah, all look, the reasons Elon you Musk should... is blameless. But for the ADL, nobody would ever believe that Elon Musk had any kind of bigoted thoughts, feelings, or beliefs. Okay. All right, that's the debate. Uh, we talk about it, and you decide more rising right after this.
old is too old? That's just one of the questions in voters' minds. And according to a new Wall Street Journal poll, the overwhelming majority of voters, 73 percent to be exact, believe Joe Biden is too old to run again, including two-thirds of Democrats. Sunday, presidential biographer Franklin Foer, who chronicled Biden's first term, told NBC's Chuck Todd that he wouldn't be too shocked if Biden ultimately decides to bow out of the presidential race. Take a look. It doesn't take Bob Woodward to understand that Joe Biden is old. And um, I'm not a gerontologist, and I can't predict how the next couple years will age Joe Biden. It would be a surprise to me, I mean, but it wouldn't be a total surprise. It wouldn't to be a me. total shock. It wouldn't be a total shock. Now, White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre has continued to defend her boss. Take a look. People have come after the president about his age. They did it in 2019. They did it in 2020, leading into the general election. And they, they did it in 2022. And guess what? He beats them every time. Here to discuss how age might play a factor in the race is Democratic strategist Amisha Cross. Nice to see you, Amisha. Glad to be here. It would surprise me if Joe Biden decides not to run, as I've said uh, numerous times on this show, um, concerns about his age notwithstanding. I think it's his party and no one can make him step aside. Um, do you still think Joe Biden is likely to be the nominee? Absolutely. Unless we're, you know, speaking in some alternative universe, there is no way that Joe Biden is not the Democratic nominee. One, he's an incumbent. Two, he has a sizable war chest. On top of that, we have to look to all of the accomplishments he's made while in office. We're talking about the CHIPS Act. We're talking about pharmaceutical drug reduction costs that literally just went into effect a few days ago for some of the most expensive drugs that the nation has ever seen to help take care of seniors who are going to need those medications to live and shouldn't have to choose between paying their rent and being able to afford life-saving medications. So much has happened during the course of this administration, and it would be completely erroneous to think that anyone else uh, would, would actually be a, not only a challenge to uh, the current president, but also that he would just step aside. Where in American history has that even happened? I mean, I think some people are looking to the fact that most recent polls show that Joe Biden is losing to Donald Trump with or without someone like Cornel West participating in the race. And they say that this is a risk for us. And when you see that even two-thirds of Democratic voters are concerned about his age, I don't know if the question is, is his record uh, justifying him running again and the power of the incumbency and all of those things that you say are true. The question is, strategically, is it advantageous for the interests of Democrats as a whole to be putting all their eggs in the basket of someone who even the bulk of Democratic voters have some doubts about in terms of his stamina and ability to run a second term? And I would imagine that if someone, an establishment Democrat like, let's say, Gavin Newsom, were to get in the race, who would be running on largely the same kind of platform and, and supporting the economy accomplishments of Joe Biden, who would simply be making the ar argument that he's a younger version that has the stamina to debate Donald Trump and also rule for not just four more years, but eight more years. So what do you, you know, what do you make of Democrats who are making that kind of a calculation? Is Joe Biden able to assure them, um, given certain kinds of gaffes, um, the criticism he's getting for, you know, how he looks and how he moves and if he's too stiff and if he, you know, is cognitively capable. You know, how does he push back against that kind of good faith concern coming from his own party? 
Joe Biden has pushed some of the most sizable legislation in a short order amount of time um, that we've seen in American history. And that is at his current age. And quite frankly, I find these arguments very interesting just because there's only three and a half years between him and Donald Trump. Both of these individuals are octogenarians and both of them are the leaders of their parties. I think what should matter here to voters writ large is more health and physicality than age. We've seen from even members on the right in Congress um, where age and health actually comes into play. We should focus more on health. What we know is that this president has had a clean bill of health as many times as he's been checked over. We know that he is agile. We know that he can have those conversations that he is leading and that he is pushing for legislative victories, many of whom he has won while he has been in office. And I think at the end of the day, for Democrats specifically, it is who's going to push against anti-DEI? Who's going to push against these anti-LGBT norms? Who's going to push against um, the, the anti-women's rights movement that has occurred, or anti-reproductive rights movement that has occurred on the right. And that person is Joe Biden. Do I think that Gavin Newsom is a strong candidate? Absolutely. And Gavin Newsom will run in four years. Democrats knew when they elected Joe Biden four years ago that four years from then, he, as well as you, I, and Ravi here, were going to be four years older four years from <laughs> four, 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 four years ago. That's how age works. You don't age in reverse, much to many people's chagrin. That is not and should not be the constitutive factor here. It is his leadership, and his leadership has been very strong. But Amisha, did the Democratic Party really choose Joe Biden saying, well, I think that he's the best candidate, or was it just the case that there was a crowded field back in 2020? At a certain point, the only one, you know, Joe Biden was consistently ahead throughout the entire primary, but couldn't consolidate more than, you know, the 30-ish the 30, the percent of the vote. Bernie Sanders had another 30-ish percent of the vote. They were kind of neck and neck going into the first primary states. Joe Biden lost, what, three of the four uh, first uh, state primary or caucus contest, and then after South Carolina winning big, the other moderates dropped out and there was a consolidation behind him. Uh, I, I don't know that that's the same thing as saying I'm betting on Joe Biden's longevity as opposed to saying I'm betting on him as the last standing kind of moderate centrist Democrat I I in the race. Um, and, and I completely agree with you, the argument that you make about it not being about chronological age, but actual kind of cognitive fitness and physical fitness to a certain degree, although I personally don't even care as much about physical fitness as cognitive fitness. But that is exactly why he's being criticized. And so I'm, I'm still just trying to put this kind of more pointed question to you. Strategically, as a Democratic Party, does it make sense to simply ignore the fact that two-thirds of your own voting base is expressing these kinds of concerns, when I think in their eyes it would be just as good for reproductive rights or any of those other policy issues that you listed to have someone like Gavin Newsom or another younger, more, not just younger, but more able, less gaffe prone, more cognizant candidate who isn't going to be as vulnerable to those kind of attacks by the likely opponent, Donald Trump. Joe Biden is going to be the Democratic nominee, full stop. With that being said, he is also going to carry the votes that matter the most in the Democratic Party and the votes that carry the base. That is black voters, that is younger voters, that is women voters. Those voters came out in heavy droves for him four years ago. Those voters will come out again now. The, the base continues to be the voters who are pushing for the exact policies that Joe Biden supports. 
Are there others within the party who support these policies? Obviously, that's how they got elected in their districts and across their states. Those people will again lodge their efforts four years from now to run. I predict that it's going to be a very, very large field come 2028. But in the 2024 election, which now is still over a year away, so a lot of these polls I, I take with a small grain of salt here, um, are going to be irrelevant moving into next year. I do think that what Joe Biden will face is having to push really hard to get some of those younger voters out because of things like the failure of student debt, um, of student debt relief, to ensure that you know that the rising cost of rent, the rising cost of housing and affordable housing across this country isn't something that hampers that vote. His main concern is going to be working to ensure that those black voters who made made his way possible in South Carolina and those black voters who made his way possible in the 2020 election are come out in similar numbers or higher numbers this go round than they did then, and that he still gets those women and those younger voters. But that how is do you the do that? At, this president actually faces. How do you do that, Amisha? Because polls have shown there was a 10 percent decline in black voter turnout in last year's midterms compared to 2018 midterms. There have been a lot of polls showing that. Joe Biden has been bleeding black support, people saying that they're going to stay home because of a number of disappointments, whether it's George Floyd justice and policing, a failure to pass a minimum wage law, a failure to pass, as you pointed out, um, a student debt cancellation, and on and on and on. But there are already polls demonstrating that Joe Biden is going to have difficulty with the exact groups that you're pointing to as necessary to his victory. That being said, it, you still have no strategic concerns about the Democratic Party sticking with Joe Biden. Absolutely not. I am also not a talking piece for the right, so you're not going to hear me repeat the things that are said on, on right-wing networks. However, Wait, what, what I do is, believe that, the, again, this president's focus areas are going to be the base that he knows is entrenched with the Democratic Party, and he is going to work to ensure that they get out. Does that mean that he's going to develop stronger messaging strategies and surrogates in the states that have the largest concentration of these individuals? Absolutely. Does that mean that he's going to hammer down on a lot of the policies that he has passed while he's been in office and how they affect those communities specifically. Absolutely. Is he going to bring to bear the voices that matter the most to those communities to be able to, again, offer themselves as surrogates on this on this campaign trail? Yes. But I do think that it is it is very sad to argue that these individuals won't come out again. One, we know that black voters in midterm elections historically have always been of a lower count than they but are. But that's not the argument, that Amisha. They're ten percent lower comparing midterm to midterm. It was ten percent lower last year than it was in 2018. They're, we're comparing apples to apples here. I'm not making prescriptive judgments here. I'm not saying this is what I want to happen. I'm saying that everyone, regardless of what you want the outcome to be and who you want the nominee to be, has to contend with the reality that there is evidence that black voters and younger voters are not as enthusiastic about Joe Biden, specifically because he has disappointed them by not fulfilling his 2020 campaign promises. And he also no longer has the benefit of running in the middle of a pandemic. Now, some people say we are still in the middle of a pandemic, but Joe Biden himself has said that the pandemic is over. So I, 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 still, am, I still think that we, we can say things like there will be no primary. We can say things like he's going to be the nominee. You can say those kinds of things affirmatively, but it doesn't get to the question of whether or not there should be a primary, whether or not Joe Biden should be the nominee. And I am not invested in the, Demo in the fate and future of the Democratic Party as it is. I, I am an independent voter. But someone who is invested in the future of the Democratic Party itself shouldn't they be engaging substantively in those kind of in those kind of questions and have a really 
well-vetted plan to change the reality that we're already seeing manifest, which is that black voters and young voters in particular have substantial, substantial, I would say significant and real reasons to be frustrated with Joe Biden and the Democrats more broadly. They have substantial reasons to be frustrated with a right-leaning Supreme Court that stopped <laughs> a lot of Joe Biden's processes, specifically around student loan debt, specifically around offending affirmative action, and specifically around um, eradicating Roe v. Wade. What they also have a responsibility toward is understanding the measure of the congressional leadership we currently have. Having a Republican-led House, even though it is not as strong as it could have been, um, considering that red wave in the midterms turned out to be a little more of a red trickle, uh, these, this still matters. The majority of what black voters are fighting is happening at the states. It's not happening at the federal level anyway. We're watching anti-DI measures occur in state governments that are run largely by Republicans. Black voters are smart enough to walk and chew gum at the same time and to segment their anger based on who is actually the people who are creating the policies most destructive to our community. Hmm. Amisha Cross, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Nightmare at Burning Man? Well, upwards of 70,000 festival goers found themselves mudlogged and stranded after torrential downpours and flooding made it nearly impossible to drive off of the site. Attendees were finally able to begin their exodus yesterday. The high-profile event is usually shrouded in secrecy. However, the disaster has exposed some celebrity at attendees. Diplo and comedian Chris Rock trekked for five miles on foot before being picked up by fans and driven out of the site. Per The Hill, officials are investigating a death from the festival, which doesn't appear to be weather-related. Hmm. Uh, yeah, this um, kerfuffle took the Internet by storm, I think, in the same way that many kind of low-level tragedies that affect uh, perceived elites really do, uh, like the fire Festival incident, uh, for instance. Mm -hmm. The idea of people who have been paying for an increasingly uh, inflated uh, cost-wise event being forced to live in really gross substandard conditions is makes it pretty ripe for uh, ridicule on uh, the internet. For a bit, why do you why do you think uh, what's uh, why do they deserve ridicule? Uh, it's not about whether they deserve ridicule, but if you're asking why people are ridiculing them, um, I think it's because. Burning Man started out as a very kind of more grassroots, hippie-ish kind of a festival, people celebrating nature and the like, but it's becoming less and less egalitarian over the years. Jacobin wrote an article detailing some of the history of this, um, and they uh, detail the extent to which the cost of the festival has gone up uh, exorbitantly, a whole infrastructure of how to get to the festival if you're rich and you don't want to caravan and do the kind of homesteading that used to be what well, the, the festival first time they was held all it, about. It wasn't in the desert, I think. It was somewhere else the oh, first I'm not, time. I'm not sure. They moved it out there at some point. Um, so, I mean, obviously, it's a it's kind of a libertarian thing. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of my—or uh, some, at least, of my coworkers at Reason Magazine have gone there in the past. One of them was there this year. Uh, my coworker Brian Doherty, who I don't think attended this year but often attends, wrote a book about Burning Man some years ago. This is Burning Man. Um, it, def it definitely is a—it's an event that involves a lot of— people in the libertarian movement and tech people and, you know, heads of social media companies. Um, I think 
your Zuckerbergs and your Elons have yeah, been so there at some point. As Jacobin writes, maybe they could have done their uh, their fight out there. <laughs> <laughs> it would have been a, a mud wrestling match. A mud wrestling match. Jacobin writes, um, it hasn't always been the providence of billionaires. In the early days, it was a free festival with a cluster of pitch tents, weird art, and explosives. But as the years went on, more exclusive turnkey camps appeared and increased in step with the ticket price, which went from thirty-five dollars in 1994 to three hundred and ninety dollars in 2015, mm -hmm. which is about sixteen times the rate of inflation, and they go on to describe how much inequity is built into it now. Um, a nearby city, Black Rock City, has its own FAA-licensed airport since 2000 to get rich people in and out. You can fly there uh, with that special package for $1,500. In 2012, Mark Zuckerberg flew into Burning Man on a private helicopter staying for just one day to eat and serve artisanal grilled cheese sandwiches. Uh, they quoted the New York Times saying, we used to have RVs and pre-cooked meals. Uh, now we have the craziest chefs in the world and people who build yurts for us that have beds and air conditioning. Yes, air conditioning in the middle of the desert. So I think this is part of why uh, we like discussed glamping. last week. Um, the climate protesters blocked the road into Burning Man uh, protesting um, the climate implications, not just of the festival itself, but trying to draw attention to global warming and climate change, generally speaking. And there is some irony to some watching the caravans backed up on the way out because they were the victim of um, unusual weather events in the area. Right. They got some atypical rainfall and storms, but I mean, unusual weather events happen sometimes. It's not. Yeah, sometimes they do. Yeah, this is definitely a, 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 a congress of elites uh, that happen here at Burning Man. It is really gone from something that was an organic kind of hippy-dippy-ish uh, conference to something that attracts, as you saw, so many extremely affluent elite celebrities um, who are perceived to be kind of um, glamping, yeah, like uh, parroting uh, conditions uh, that so many people un, un you know yeah. un unwittingly or against their own interests or desires are forced to live in and there is something that to many people kind of whiffs of Marie Antoinette having that peasant cottage built out behind uh, Versailles so she could cosplay like she was an every woman and a peasant in a way that was kind of out of touch and maybe even insulting to people who were living in those real conditions. And I think that that, that is part of why uh, people have been so frustrated. Yeah, I just don't, I can't, I don't understand or, or feel that. I have a live and let live ethos if you want to, if you're rich and you want to, this doesn't appeal to me at all to go do this, but if it's your thing and you want to go do it and do it in a really authentic way or you want to go and just like, you know, rebuild your loft apartment in the desert with air conditioning and art and really nice food, I don't really get it, but go ahead and do that if you want. It just doesn't, it's like no skin off my back. I just don't care. Ken Klippenstein, journalist with The Intercept, uh, pointed out that um, the Nestle uh, lawyer who defended the child slavery case was there saying, POV, you're a corporate lawyer who successfully def defended Nestle in child slavery case, but also likes to have fun having a picture of him what wearing his little beanie. What was the Nestle child slavery case? Uh, that Nestle was using child labor to, to harvest cacao beans um, and was defending that practice. Mm. It was in, pretty uh, straightforward. In some other country, I uh, guess. Yeah.
Um, Kate Willett, uh, who does a lot of housing advocacy, she's also a very funny comedian with some, uh, I think, a, a special coming out soon, um, tweeted in a, in a very viral tweet, my heart goes out to many venture capitalists and tech Yimby friends uh, trapped at Burning Man. I hope people bring the food and supplies you desperately need, give them to someone else, and that they can trickle down to you over decades in a process called filtering, uh, pointing out the hypocrisy between the, the, the perceived hypocrisy between the politics uh, shared by many of the Silicon Valley people there and their need to rely on government services to help bail them out of this uh, catastrophe here. So this is obviously going to be a, a polarizing one. It'll be interesting to see if some of the people who uh, spend a lot of time criticizing elites and elite excess in other contexts uh, will defend these people who have really put themselves in this situation unnecessarily. Um, is there going to be hypocrisy there? A lot of people thinking, oh, this is fine and good, but we're going to be very mad at <laughs> some other person for, I don't know, going to college or doing something, eating arugula or wearing a tan suit or the kinds of things that have been uh, <laughs> uh, framed as elite in the past. I don't care about the tan suit or the yeah, not, not you, arugula. Obama? Yeah. Yes. Oh, I'm shame, excited shame, now. shame on him. Michelle had that vegetable garden, which was elitist and bad. Um, but, you know, I think it is, it is worth... But she, was trying, but she was trying to, I mean, it's, again, I, I mean, speaking for, I think, for people on the right of an anti-elite populist bent, it's more like, well, how, what are they doing to hurt me or coerce me? Um, like with, uh, with Michelle Obama, right? She had an entire replace school lunch foods with inedible, with like less tasty things. That people, that's, a, that's, a, that's how they're making your life worse. Like if they're just out there living it up with their wealth, maybe that makes the left populist very mad. She didn't the wanna, right populist the, don't the, the, the goal wasn't, much. It wasn't about replacing um, lunch food with less tasty things. It was making sure that people get nutritionally complete, healthy lunches for our children to help address the obesity crisis in the United States of America. You know, if, if your people are concerned about fat uh, women eating fudge rounds uh, on the dole, what's something that would help that effort is if is if uh, Michelle school, Obama tells us what we're supposed to eat at lunch. No, if school lunches, generally speaking, which are dramatically underfunded and which are regrettably the only source of nutrition for millions of poor kids uh, who rely on them for their one complete meal a day, making sure that those meals are nutritionally complete so that our children can be healthy, learn better, and live I as long as I remember a lot of complaints and ambiguity about whether specifically Michelle Obama's plan or suggested replacement foods were, they might have been more nutritious, but whether it was enough calories for, um, for Look, kids, for athletes. good news. Kids can keep eating um, meals which around the world are considered to be some of the worst quality, both gross looking, gross tasting, and not nutritious foods. Conservatives, you, you won that one, so no need to fight me on it. Michelle Obama is long gone. It's never going to be in the White House again. And the quality of American food lunches is still um, the subject of ridicule around the globe. Congrats. All right, we'll have more rising right after this. Is it 2020 all over again? Some are sounding alarm bells that it may be starting to feel like it. The rise in recent COVID cases had le has led many institutions to reinstate mask mandates and other measures that are reminiscent of COVID's early days. But according to new reporting from journalist David Zweig, a paper published last, last month calls the premise on which mask mandates and other COVID interventions are based into question. The paper published in the Lancet Microbe reportedly found that infected people are symptomatic 
before uh, that that uh, people before they develop symptoms are very rarely have the ability to affect others, throwing doubt into the societal benefit of requiring mask and social distancing measures for healthy people's wide rights. Journalist David Zweig joins us now to tell us more. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me again. So one of the interesting things I found about this study looking into it is that it, it was a challenge trial in that they actually infected people with COVID. Can you talk a little bit about uh, the, the, the scientific process and how they uh, arrived at this result? Yeah, it's a really um, pretty um, unique type of scientific experiment, which as you noted is called a challenge trial. And by challenge, they mean they are purposefully infecting people with the virus. Um, this is not done in the States for, for COVID. There was um, one application made to NIAID, um, that's Anthony Fauci's agency when he was there, and it was rejected to do a challenge study. So these are these are somewhat controversial um, because, you know, for the, the ethical reasons of purposefully infecting people. Nevertheless, this group um, in the UK at Imperial College did get approval and ran um, this challenge study that came out with these results. And, and, and these results are what Walk us through it is that it looks at the, the amount of, um, of infectious material on the, on the inside of a mask of people when they're actually symptomatic with COVID because they gave them COVID. <clears throat> and, and, you know, fill me in that the, the finding and the interpretation is that what you really have to be wary of is people who are actually actively sick, not people who are infected but are not showing symptoms yet. Right. So what's interesting is, um, unlike most studies um, where they're looking at transmission dynamics, those are, they oftentimes involve some degree of modeling. There's a lot of confounding variables because you just can't control what's going on in the real world. You don't exactly know what's happening. But in this challenge study, this is a controlled experiment. So they know who they've infected, and they're checking them every day, they're monitoring them for symptoms. So you're able to have this very um, specific environment where you're able to get specific um, biological results rather than sort of conjecture um, that much of the other um, evidence was based on. So they purposefully try to infect um, a number of participants in this trial. They each stay in these private rooms for, I think it was a minimum of 14 days, and of the people who, who became infected, um, they monitored their symptoms and they found that just 7% of the emissions that these people put off, and this was, um, they measured it in a variety of places. They looked behind their masks, so they had them wear masks for periods of time. They looked on surfaces, on their hands, and I believe they also took measurements in the air. And what they found was that just 7% of these emissions in their rooms, um, in the air, and in the environment and surfaces of the infected participants just set, occurred um, while they were pre-symptomatic, which means they were infected, but before they actually developed symptoms. And what to me is a real bombshell about this study is these results really run counter to the narrative that we were told from very early on in the pandemic, which was this idea that anyone could be infected at any given time. We all needed to do these various measures mask mandates for children, even if they were healthy, everyone still needs to wear the mask. Quarantining people, again, including children, if there's some kid who's infected in your class or in your school, that's it. You need to be quarantined for X number of days. Closures of churches, closures of businesses. All of these measures were based on an idea that 
people could unwittingly be infecting others because anyone could be infected at any moment and not know it. And what the results of this study suggest, and this is a small study, and there definitely are limitations with this study like there are with any study, but what it suggests and what's powerful about it is because they're actually measuring the biological markers, they're actually testing people for their infectiousness. Um, unlike these other studies, we actually have real data to see Wow, only 7%. And I'll add one other thing that's really interesting about this study. Prior to this point, most of the studies that looked at infectiousness were looking at, um, and they were testing it biologically, were looking at viral load. They were testing in someone's nose, um, in their respiratory tract. What's interesting about this study is they looked at viral load, but they also tested these emissions that I was talking about behind the mask, in the air, on surfaces. And that, of course, is a much, much better um, marker, accurate measure of how much someone um, could be infectious is how much. And what they found is there is not a really strong correlation between how much viral load someone may have in their body versus how much um, virus they're actually emitting into the air or onto surfaces. So this study really kind of blows a couple narratives out of the water. And I'm kind of astonished that no one else seemed to really be covering these uh, results other than I did in my, in my newsletter. I do wonder if some of the lack of public reaction is that, while I think you're completely right about some of the early narratives around COVID, it's been quite some time since I've really heard many people pushing the idea that masking is necessary because of um, asymptomatic transmission. I think that a lot of that was all part of the discourse um, uh, from, from, from earlier days, back when we thought that um, getting vaccinated was going to limit transition, and I think transmission rather. And I think people were obviously very incorrect about that. And as a, as a consequence, we've heard less about that going forward. I am curious whether or not the fact that Joe Biden stopped sending out the um, testing kits a year ago, the fact that there is no effort of doing any kind of contact tracing, et cetera, means that there's, there's a risk of people who are, in fact, symptomatic not realizing that they are symptomatic with COVID and therefore transmission at, transmitting the virus at significantly high rates the way the study shows is possible for people who do, in fact, have COVID both in the air and on surfaces. Yeah, it's a really good point that part of the challenge is that sometimes people, I think what you're saying, people can have symptoms and not realize it. So we have to be careful about when we're saying pre-symptomatic because, you know, maybe you have a little bit of a runny nose or something and you don't notice it. So that I think that's a really important point. Um, however, um, at, what I would say regarding that is what's interesting is I know my kids and millions of other kids throughout the pandemic had to fill out a questionnaire every morning where they were asked, you know, a long list of, of questions we had to check off about various symptoms. Um, and there were a number, you know, there were temperature checks at schools. If someone as much as, you know, sneezed, they were, uh, you know, ejected um, in a lot of places. So there was a hyper attention, um, at least with kids in a lot of places, to their symptoms. So I think even mild symptoms were likely detected. Um, and, and regarding the sort of current environment, there are a number of places that have brought back mask mandates. It hasn't been a, a broad-based thing by any measure. Um, but I think this test and what I wrote about, uh, this, um, excuse me, this, this study, what's important is it's also important for us to look back. So even if things right now haven't you know, brought back you know, mass um, 
uh, non-pharmaceutical interventions the way they were in place in the pandemic, it's still important for us to have some retrospective view on what we did and what made sense and what didn't make sense. And I think this study, again, it's just one, one study and other, other data may wind up you know, um, conflicting with this, but it's, it's pretty robust um, the way that they conducted it. And I, I think it's worth people pausing and really thinking about, wow, it turns out what we were told wasn't the case most likely. And what, what I talk about in the article is that, you know, the sort of classic thing of if you're sick, stay home, um, that really would have gotten us to probably the same place after all. And we know that was the policy in a number of places like Sweden and elsewhere, um, particularly in schools where they weren't necessarily testing people all the time. And there's no evidence that they ultimately had more transmission or were worse off than places that had these far more um, restrictive policies in place. So yeah. those, that sort of real world um, empirical evidence we have seems to my mind to strongly buttress what the findings are in this study. Before we let you go, does this suggest, and I, you know, I've seen people in uh, in the American context suggest that the reluctant, the you know, utter ethical blackout on doing challenge trials, um, that, you know, that's coming under scrutiny. Obviously, we do we do animal testing, but animals can't consent to be tested on the way human beings with that are you know thinking and can rationalize can. Uh, it seems somewhat you know, short sight, if people you know, want to willingly take this on and be compensated, uh, that would not be an unethical thing to do if people are aware of, of the risk, particularly at this stage of the pandemic where you could have healthy people, you know, people who don't have, um, you know, immunocompromised conditions or who are vaccinated or boosted, you know, who, who don't think the risks are particularly great and probably the statistics bear that out and are willing to do it. Um, should we change our ethics around that? Yeah, it, it's a great point. And, you know, once I started reading about this study, there's actually a, a, a pretty nice, um, rich literature about this topic where you have bioethicists and others um, talking about the ethics of challenge studies. These have been around for a long time, obviously, for different viruses prior to um, SARS-CoV-2. Um, so th there is an interesting debate to be had. I forget what the participants were paid. I could be wrong. I think it was something like 6,000 pounds or something. So, you know, if you're young and healthy, you're weighing, weighing everything out, you know, you might say, give it a shot. You know, n as yeah. far as I'm aware, no one in the trial had any, you know, serious um, repercussions. Um, like I said, um, there, I, what, from what I read, there was at least one study, challenge study that was proposed that was rejected by Anthony Fauci. And I believe he was on record saying that they didn't have any interest in pursuing challenge studies. So, hmm. you know, like anything, there's some degree of risk involved in doing work that's going to bring you more accurate and more rigorous results than, than guesswork. And it's the same thing if you wanted to run a trial you know, for vaccines, for, you know, masks in schools, when you have people claiming that there's not, you know, equipoise and that you can't do this, well, fine, but then you end up not getting real answers. A, a trial like this, and we should all be thankful to the people who were willing to participate in it, gives us actual um, answers. So, you know, it, it was a lot of fun writing yeah. this article. It was fascinating to me, and um, I'm glad to talk about it with you. I hope people check it out. And I should mention one more thing. In the article, I mentioned, um, there was another study out of Stanford, which I had also written about, where they found a very low rate of asymptomatic um, infectiousness in people, totally different type of study. And this also did not get a lot of attention. These two studies together dovetail really nicely 
and I think really call into question the sort of 30 to 50% um, transmission that we were told could happen from people without symptoms. That narrative seems to be just totally false. Mm. Viewers can check out those articles at silentlunch.net. David Zweig, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Podcast giant Joe Rogan had Real Time's Bill Maher on his show and sparked a new wave of controversy from liberal pundits. Let's watch. Even if I was, now this is just me, but I'm allowed my opinion. If, if, if I was 100 billion percent convinced I was born in the wrong body, I still wouldn't do anything to my body because medical considerations come first. That the idea that you can just take some sort of puberty blockers or or just snap on snap off organs yeah without really hurting myself medically and taking years off my life right is ridiculous and so i would somehow make it work with whatever with the equipment i was born with because we're just not that advanced medically to make it work and still be healthy even if i was now this is just me but I'm i mean i think the oh i'm sure the response from um trans people and people um, who are advocates of, uh, of transitioning would say, okay, that's fine, that's you, but people, other people might feel different. If that's you, that's fine, but other people probably feel differently. And if they want to go ahead and transition, again, I think that should be their right. I think that should be between you and your doctor and, again, your family if you're, if you're a young person, but otherwise, I'd, uh, adults, consenting adults can do whatever they want with their own bodies. And other people can judge it if they want or say it's not for them, but it's just none of my business. It is pretty remarkable how quickly we slid from, slid from I care about freedom, I want to do my own thing, I want my independence from the government. Well, I don't know if Bill Maher cares about freedom, but... Well, Bill Maher, he's been very much, I drugs should be legal, I want to smoke my pot, I want to live in peace, I don't want yeah. all of that stuff. And the trans debate started saying, well, yeah, we love freedom, we just care about kids. And now it's gotten down to, well, I'm Bill Maher, and I don't want any invasive surgical procedures that aren't uh, necessary to save my life in a very literal way. And therefore, I'm going to rail against other people who want something different for them in their lives. I, I mean, obviously, he's entitled to his opinion. I'm just not sure why I should care about it. Yeah. I, well, I'm what did, uh, I don't know if Joe Rogan pushed back or how he responded to it. I didn't watch the full clip, no, but uh, so, I think he has a similar... Well, he's, he's so interesting. He used to be, I think, very unfairly characterized as transphobic because he had a very specific critique about whether or not uh, trans women participating against cis women in particularly very violent sports, like MMA fighting, which is right. his area of expertise, was equitable for cis women. That and, sounds reasonable. You know, after he articulated that view, immediately he was characterized as being transphobic. And in the wake of that, he was very clear to affirm that he has no issue with trans people in other contexts or gender-affirming care or any of those kinds of things. And I haven't quite followed his trajectory since then on this particular issue, but it, it, it has been the case of other people that when they have been, I would argue, disproportionately um, criticized after making a more, taking a more moderate, you know, mm -hmm. moderate, not necessarily transphobic position uh, on these kinds of issues, they go deeper and deeper 
and eventually do start to take some transphobic uh, positions in response to the criticism they've got, kind of in a, well, if you're going to say this about me anyway, I might as well just lean in, or mm -hmm. the people who've embraced me and been nice to me are those closer to this more maybe transphobic ideology, so I'm going to move in that direction because that's just who I'm hanging out with more because my old friends don't want to hang out with me anymore. And we saw this with, um, Glenn Greenwald wrote an article about this with Maria Nadatrolova, the tennis player, um, and kind of charted, and he was making the argument that being kind of uh, disproportionately hostile to people who ask just even a little bit of a question about the equity of uh, gender-segregated sports, you know, Right. Do we, is it just, you know, are women, are cis women who are segregated from sports in order to have opportunities to compete being disadvantaged? You know, after asking that, she was, you know, very much criticized. And how we feel about that criticism over time has increasingly gone to a more conservative position on those issues. Um, and he was arguing that that can be counterproductive to the interests of trans activists. I know that people are not going to like that argument either. But, you know, that aside, I don't know what, I don't know what Joe Rogan thinks. Yeah. And I think there's, I think it, it is fine and even desirable to, you know, make sure um, I, I, people who, who are having any kind of body serious health transformation change um, should really do their research, should, you know, really talk it through with, with uh, medical experts, should know what they're getting into. You know, we have interviewed, I'm not saying they're representative, but there are cases of people who've gone through with, uh, with transitioning that regret it, that think it was not the right choice for them. I don't think their experience should invalidate other people for whom it was the right choice, but it seems, you know, we, we can, cooler heads can prevail and, you know, just make sure uh, this is really something you want to get yourself into because, uh, and, and, you know, we, we don't know for instance, what all of the long-term health complications of something like puberty blockers could potentially be. So make sure you're aware of that. I know that and other you know, European authorities have started um, changing and to be less affirming of that kind of stuff. That doesn't mean it's right or I agree with it, but just you know, know the, the, the landscape surrounding these issues and make an informed decision for yourself. Again, it's none of my business, but I, it's, I, I'm sad for the people who have done it and have regretted it. And if you know, further consultation would have prevented that, I think that's a good thing. And I'm just advocating that for people, but I'm not, I'm well, not an expert are, and I'm not pushing it all, on anyone. Those are just all medical decisions. Yeah. There are any number of 16-year-old girls in places like New York and LA who are running around with nose jobs that I personally don't think you should get for your little girls. There are a bunch of very young women. Kylie Jenner uh, got some blowback recently because she acknowledged during an episode of Keeping Up with the Kardashians, or whatever it's called now, that now that she looks at her daughter and she sees her daughter is so perfect, um, that she regrets some of the surgeries that she had as a young woman, and not just ones that are kind of maybe sexualizing, like a breast enhancement or nose job or those kind of things. But she had her ears pinned back because she was, you know, her family made fun of her for having like kind of sticky outy ears. ears. Pinned back? Yeah, that's a surgery that people get. I had a, a male classmate in high school actually had his ears pinned back. But, you know, um, now she looks at her little girl and she's like, oh, Stormy has my ears. I think she, she's so cute and I regret having done that to myself. So, mm -hmm. I mean, People should be able to have their regrets. I, I, I disagree with the blowback against her. I think it's good that she came to that realization. She was like a 20-year-old. She was a 20 when she gave birth. She was a very young person when she had all of these surgeries. And I think it's better for her to be coming out and telling the public that she had regrets than having to keep it inside because, you know, she's going to get castigated for being honest about her feelings. So, her, you know, I, I, don't, under, I don't understand this. P 
people make surgical decisions. Kanye West's mom died getting plastic surgery, and that's part of why he had such a breakdown, because he paid for the surgery and he regrets it. People seek out and get medical interventions all the time to make themselves feel better that aren't medically indicated um, and that sometimes have bad outcomes. But why is it, that's just none of my business. Right, it's none of my business. I, I don't, and, and people who, like, we, what, what kind of weird topsy-turvy world do we live in? Why is Bill Maher talking about it? And talking about it so much. And not even, not even saying, well, I have an issue with the kids because the kids are vulnerable and, and we need to protect the kids. Just fully sitting on a radio show opining that, well, I would never want to get transition surgery. So, so what exactly? Where has where this discourse led us? Well, I mean, I don't know. It's a, it's a controversial subject of, I can't blame uh, uh, pundit take having people for weighing in on the controversial subjects of the day, um, as you know, as we are want to do. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I think it's controversial that we're the only developed country that doesn't allow our government to negotiate prescription drug prices. I think it's controversial that we have the well, largest prison, prison population per capita. About that today too. Yeah, because I bring these things up. <laughs> I think it's controversial uh, that the president of the United States, who heralded himself as the most pro-labor uh, president since FDR, crushed a labor strike. I think it's controversial that Bill Maher, in this very interview, said that the people who were uh, the the, the the, the multi-millionaire uh, show um, network runners who've paid themselves double-digit million salaries while telling their striking employees that they can't get a pay raise have, quote, kooky beliefs, um, but doesn't talk about ex exploiting the labor of their workers as one of the kooky beliefs that's being held by these uh, people who seem to have millions upon millions to pay themselves, but not the employees that create the products that we know and love in all of these streaming services. So. You know, I, I do think that there is some indication that the right has kind of jumped the shark on this issue to the extent that they were exploiting some real ambiguity that the public had about where, where what direction this was going in and where they should go. They've strayed from safer ground, the kind of sports, maybe kids stuff, and are mm -hmm. now just sitting around saying, well, I think trans stuff is weird. <laughs> and it's like, okay, now you, you look like the person who's against civil liberties. And people don't like that. Yeah, well, but I don't know. I don't think he was saying, I don't know, I didn't watch the full clip, um, if he was saying it should be prohibited or something. I mean, that would be very hypocritical if he was, because he's an advocate for putting whatever you want substance-wise into your body, which I support. It's not my business. Well, why People do you think he's just... talking about it? Because he's not sitting there saying, like... I like pineapple on pizza, another hot take. <laughs> <He's>... <laughs> we could talk about our food takes all day long. It's just not what people want to listen to. And why is that? Hmm? Why do you think that people are so invested in this Why are issue? people interested in certain things and not others? I don't know, Brianna. Why do they care about aliens so much? Why do well, they? Look, there, there's more than one Republican presidential candidate that has explicitly characterized, designed their platform to emphasize exactly these kind of issues. Ron DeSantis saying, I'm running on anti-wokeness. Vivek Ramaswamy running on his book, Woke Inc., largely, which is another peon against anti-wokeness and exactly these kinds of issues. Well, because there is an extreme dislike of, again, what we're calling wokeness um, among conservatives, and they experienced some success in mainstreaming that opposition vis-a-vis -vis some of these subjects, maybe in a more limited sense than it's been being now with gender um, theory and transformation in schools with some DEI stuff, with some of the, this is all, you know, kids in schools and what the policy should be, and they had some electoral success, and they've taken that to the next level, and maybe it'll reach a point where the right's gone too far. Maybe we're already there. I don't know. But, it is, uh, it, I mean, I do think it's starting to seem kind of authoritarian, the same way that 
uh, conservative abortion policies are starting to see, seem authoritarian when you've been saying for decades, you could get to the states and now you want to prohibit it on a state-by-state -state basis as well. And we're seeing electorally, at least in midterms are any indication, that independent voters and some conservative voters are increasingly frustrated that it seems like even down to the level of the family, they're not going to be able to implement their preferences. I mean, Vivek Ramaswamy said at the debate that the best um, unit of government is like the American family. Mm -hmm. Well, if you're getting to the point where you're not allowing families to make decisions about their own children's upbringing, whether or not they can take advantage of certain well, kind of medical resources, whether or not they can be parents as trans parents and have the same kind of rights and, to adopt and things like that, then it starts to feel like it's not really about reducing it to the level of family choice, that it really is about big government control on a state level, if not a federal level. Well, I, I think many conservatives feel like some of the policies that Republicans are seeking to, rect, to correct did were ultimately taking away decision-making rights from family and transferring them to Liberals schools were and forcing, officials. forcing you to trans your kids? Well, they were introducing um, gender-related uh, subjects into the classroom that some parents aren't comfortable with and don't think is right for their families. Yeah. I mean, look, people can have their subjective view, but it does feel to me very different to say, my kid who is trans and wants to transition is going to be barred from doing that versus my kid heard about the existence of trans people in school. And you don't have to like hearing about the existence of trans people in school, but in a basic civil liberties perspective, it's like saying, okay, the prison industrial complex. I, my kid was told about prisons versus my kid is literally incarcerated. I mean, the stakes are a little bit different here. And I do think that if we're gonna live in a society, we've gotta figure out how to have a sense of proportionality as we talk about some of this stuff. All right, a very happy birthday to one of our talented editors, Khalid Brickhouse. We want to say happy birthday to you, Khalid, and we will have more Rising right after this. A new report spotlights once again Big Pharma's egregious scamming of sick Americans in reaction to the recent launch of a new program letting Medicare negotiate lower prices for a handful of medicines. Drug makers are balking, saying that the initiative will limit patients' access to medicine and stymie the development of new cures. But as Andrew Perez and Matthew Cunningham Cook point out, all 10 of the drugs up for negotiation are already being sold in other countries at fractions of what pharmaceutical companies are charging for them here in the United States. And drug makers are reporting huge revenues from those foreign sales. Democratic presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. retweeted the report, highlighting this fact. In some cases, Americans are being charged 1,000 percent more than foreign pa uh, patients for the same drugs. Yeah, this this has been a fight that's been going on for a lot of years. People, I'm sure most older people remember, but for the benefit of those of us who weren't necessarily clued into what was going on in Medicare, uh, you know, a decade plus ago, we had a Medicare system that did not include the price of pres prescription drugs into 2006. That's an incredible thing to really consider, that there was an understanding that there needed to be a public health care program that ended up being one of the most public, uh, popular public programs in the history of the American government, but that what, which excluded because of the push from the pharmaceutical industry and lobbyists, which, by the way, there's about three lobbyists for every c congressperson. Um, 
to exclude the right of the government to be able to, sorry, to exclude the inclusion of prescription drug prices. So you go to the doctor and the doctor's health care, the advice to you might, might be covered. If you have to go in and have a surgery, that'll be covered. But if they send you home saying you've got to take these pills to stay alive, that in fact was not included as part of your coverage. Now in 2006, there was a hot political debate about how to resolve this issue. Uh, George Bush wanted uh, a kind of a privatized version of a solution as opposed to just including the drugs as a part of Medicare. Eventually, we got um, prescription coverage as part of Medicare, but the, the Faustian bargain was this, that unlike every other government in the world, similarly situated government in the world, which allows the government with its power as the number one provider of these prescription medications to negotiate drug prices on the behalf of patients, of citizens, our government would not be allowed to do that. And we've been dealing with that Faustian bargain all this time because ultimately it has resulted in the prices of drugs soaring here in the United States, unlike all these other similarly situated countries. And it seems like RFK Jr. very savvily, the same way that Donald Trump actually was criticizing this as he was running in 2016, realizes this is a, an opportunity to really distinguish himself among a field. Yeah, I read this article in Jacobin, which is a socialist publication. I didn't expect to like it very much, but there's actually plenty in it I agree with, including calling out things that um, libertarians have complained about a lot. Um, so if the drugs are a thousand percent cheaper in other countries, let's just import them. Just buy them, just ship them. Amazon can deliver them. Um, but in fact, you can't because that's illegal. Right. That's an FDA issue. That's one thing. The other thing is these, um, the abuse, the insane abuse of the patent system that'll, so that there's not generic, uh, uh, competitors for the like they're not they're not exposed to actual free market pressures because they have all these ways to prevent um, uh, uh, generics from competing with them. The the patent system is ridiculous um, to begin with. So I, I was glad to see all that called out here. Yeah, today. and specific specifically and again, this is an issue of lobbyists buying control of agencies, not you know the FDA waking up. It itself just trying to be bad actors. There's specifically a nonprofit called Partnership for Safe Medicines that emerged a few years ago as a leading voice against the kind of Senate bills that would have allowed drugs to be imported from uh, Canada yeah. specifically. This really is a, um, a lobbyist issue. It's why many of us were pointing out that Joe Biden was unlikely to be the one that brought real reform in this area, given that he took more money from the pharmaceutical industry than anybody else in the 2020 race. Now, some people will say, well, you were wrong. He's obviously, um, he ran on uh, allowing the government to negotiate prescription drug prices. That has now gone into effect. But let's look at the fine print. This goes into effect in 2026. It only involves this small roster of 10 drugs. Some of those 10 drugs, as the um, article points out, as the Jacobin mm -hmm. article points out, are going to be excluded for other reasons relating to uh, generics coming on the market and et cetera, and are just kind of performatively in the roster of 10 drugs. Um, and it seems obvious that the, the, the original plan was deeply diluted by further lobbying from the industry. Also, these drugs weren't chosen because they are the, the ones that people need the most or the most life-saving or where costs have run away. The, the, it's not, has not been tailored in any way for the maximum benefit of the American public. It has to do with these kind of business negotiations with these drug retailers. Moreover, it's really important to point out, not only are they making hand, a profit hand over fist overseas on the very drugs that Americans are having to pay exorbitant fees for. And then but, our tax dollars subsidize their research but that, Yeah, that was going to be my <laughs> point, that the, that the claims that the pharmaceutical companies are making, that but for their ability to profit, they would not be able to manufacture these drugs or come up with these drugs in the first place, is really undermined by the extensive government invested, 
investment of our tax dollars into the research and development in the first instance. Yeah, I, I don't really disagree. I mean, I would, <laughs> I would probably call into question a lot of that funding anyway. Um, you know, if they're going to reap the profits from the drugs they design, then they can pay for the uh, for for assembling them in the lab or whatever it is. And uh, and I, again, I would really like to just if they're selling them like it's a, we should have a glo global economy. Sorry, you're selling them cheaply in Vietnam or Malaysia or whatever. I, we can uh, we can uh, we can have somebody uh, you know put those in a put them in a box and uh, arrive in U.S. shores. It would be that. It'd be great to me. Yeah, I mean, last year Bernie Sanders made an effort. I'll, I'll do it. I'll drive down to Mexico. I'll stockpile them. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, so Bernie Sanders historically has done these best trips, Vermont being so close to Canada, to bring public attention to this issue, taking a bunch of uh, usually people with diabetes to Canada to buy insulin, which has ten times historically been ten times more costly in the United States than it is just a few miles north of where Bernie resides in Vermont, to demonstrate how ridiculous. Um, American policy is. Uh, he tried to use um, must-pass legislation last year to get an amendment in that would allow importation from Canada. He's been making these kind of efforts throughout. Yeah, that'd and, be I, great. and I really do wish that, that we, we talk so much about some of these culture issues and some of these issues with partisan bickering. I do wish the progressives in Congress would spend more time drawing attention to why it is that even some Democrats oppose this kind of legislation um, and why it's taken this long for Joe Biden, despite this being one of his core campaign promises, to even go this far, and why it is that we're still talking about a limited roster of 10 drugs and not simply flinging the doors open yeah. um, and it call seem out like your it's colleagues. It's going to be a huge improvement looking at it, frankly. I mean, there, it's being heralded as this incredible yeah. achievement that justifies everybody coming out to vote for Joe Biden again. But I, my personal subjective perspective is that the role of the progressive wing of the Democratic Party should be pointing out the corruption within the flank of its own party uh, and, and pointing out the fact that even when you have a trifecta, as Joe Biden did for the first two years of his administration, you're still not getting a fulfillment of these basic campaign promises, which are also widely popular with the American people more broadly. If he is going to do this minimum effort, if you put in this minimum effort, your job should be pushing him increasingly to the left, not giving him a parade for doing the bare minimum. Mm. Well, we will continue following that, although nice of uh, RFK Jr. to call it out, you know, call attention to this. Maybe that'll help win back the uh, affection of some of uh, the, the progressive base that you think has turned on him a little bit, giving some of his statements. Look, I certainly think it's good for him and people like Marianne and Cornell West who are in the race to keep highlighting these kind of issues that may or may not have the effect of pushing Joe Biden. But if they don't have any real viable chance to winning, they're not going to put that much pressure on him. And as you can see from some of Joe Biden's defenders, even that we've talked to today on the show, there is a, a choice to just emphasize how happy we should be for the crumbs that we've gotten, uh, as opposed to doing any kind of real pushing or threat to withhold one's vote in a way that might actually have a real effect. So. I don't think it's going to turn the left back on to RFK Jr. <laughs> the Israel stuff, I think, was pretty much the death knell for him on the left. But the voice in the mix in the room is certainly appreciated. Mm. Well, we'll have more rising right after this. Is Congress actually going to release what they might know about UFOs? 
fat chance. <laughs> Congress is, however, expected to vote on a UFO-related amendment to the National Defense Authorization Act, supported by Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and also Republican Senator Mike Rounds. This would establish a review board that would collect, examine, and release UFO-related records. Now, the nine-member board would be appointed by President Joe Biden, and the only person who would be allowed to share the findings with the public is President Joe Biden. In a statement from July, Schumer and Rounds wrote, the federal government shall have imminent domain over any and all recovered technologies of unknown origin and biological evidence of non-human intelligence that may be controlled by private persons or entities in the interest of the public good. Congressman Tim Burchett did not express confidence in the amendment when asked about the proposal during a recent Hill UFO and national security event. Do you think that that amendment will be enough to sort of help in your efforts of creating this more increased transparency and decreasing the stigma. I think what you'll do is put it all under one central location and they'll decide that it is not, um, that it is a national security issue and somebody will whisper in their ear and shut that down. I think what they need to do is just release the files, the unredacted files. So, so you're, you're, so are you, you're not confident that this amendment will make it in the no, compromise? No, no you're, you're asking, you're going to tell, and the Pentagon is is helping with this. A group that's helped. I thought, you know, the Pentagon says they don't exist. So, so why, what what's there to review? I don't trust them. I don't trust them from day one. They're war pimps. That's all, and their business is very good right now. And that's what they're after. They're after more dollars, more of your tax dollars, and they don't need any more. They just need to release these files. This shows how weak and pathetic Congress is, that they are proposing to create a board to look at UFO stuff that will be appointed by the president and any information shared on the president's authority. They're not even, they don't even have the spine to give themselves this power. <laughs> how weak and pathetic is this? It, it's, it's very bad. I mean, now, it's not just, obviously, Joe Biden. Ostensibly, if they made this board, then the if, office if, a of new, the presidency. Fine. If, if a new president were elected, then they would have access to all this information without it having to be collected mm -hmm. and could make a, a game day decision as to whether or not the rest of us should know about it. You know, it does feel like, again, the specter of national security concerns is being used to justify how all of these amendments and policies are being designed. There seems to be an acknowledgement or a mutually shared feeling that simply saying we're going to disclose this stuff as it comes out is, is not a viable plan. Ostensibly, the only reason I can imagine is because there's some claimed national security interest. But that national security interest, as we, as we discussed before, yeah. is a limitless barrier to disclosures to the public. I just feel so gaslit on this topic. Um, the claims are not being backed up with anything resembling substantiation. It's more of the, I know somebody who knows something, but I can't tell you who that is, and they're not going to come forward because they fear unspecific retaliation, even though it would be it would this person would be would be you know paraded around um, uh, media to, would, would have no shortage of economic opportunities if that's the fear if it's fear of again actual like death killing as has been alleged um, again there are, why why doesn't some rival government want uh, you know some uh, amnesty or sanctuary or something why aren't there contrary geopolitical goals it's just it's 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 a it's a it's a big claim that's just not being backed up 
at all. And then all these, and on, on that side, and then on the other side, all these puny efforts at disclosure and transparency that I support. I fully support disclosure and transparency. If there's nothing there, if there's something to it, I don't care. I want the American people, they deserve access to whatever is being hidden, whatever inventory yeah. is out there. I want it, but we are making no ground at all. Yeah. Just closing this stuff. I was um, in Cleveland over the weekend, and there was a big air show that happened to coincide with my visit. And um, you know, we watched some of it, and there were some very impressive, tech, from a technological perspective, planes. Including, I was watching this one jet that can raise and lower like a helicopter via jet propulsion coming out the bottom of the plane. Never seen anything like it. And I was reflecting on technology and what we understand about what our government's technological capacities are, the fact that this plane is like 40 years old or something, all the planes that we're watching are quite old, despite being very impressive and despite still being very much in service, mm. and reflecting on the likelihood, um, the comparative likelihood that what people have observed, these UAPs, are in fact new technology with objects that can move in new ways that are not known to the public versus whether or not they are alien craft. Because I do think that the government's interest in protecting its own technolo technological advancement from being known more broadly by the public, by our adversaries, is much higher than their interest in not disclosing that some little green men landed on the planet at some point. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. Um, it's getting annoying not hearing more about it. <laughs> Like, I know that there's so much interest and in, in appetite in it from the public, but I, I really do think that at a certain point, people have to start to reckon with the reality of the situation. I mean, I'm, I'm very persuaded by researchers like uh, Dr. Loeb, who we talked to a couple times now, that is studying the science, you know, elements, material science. Real things dredged up from the ocean floor. You can, scientific... your, you can wrap your head around it. Well, it's not just that. I can wrap my hands around it. These are, yeah. I mean, they're like very small particles, but they're material realities in our world that we can study. And it's evidence-based science. When he's, when he's talking about why he thinks it's something that come, came from out of the solar system, he has mathematical models to demonstrate why he believes that. He's looking at the composition of the metal and the alloys to say, this is not a naturally occurring substance on, on Earth. And... The science can be wrong and people can poke, poke, poke holes in it, but at the end of the day, we're starting from something being there, as opposed to these other kinds of claims. And, and you were saying earlier, you know, people might be feeling like there is a threat to their lives if they come out and speak. I don't want to minimize that, but it is also true, knowing that there's this public clamoring for this information to come out, if there are people who do have this information and they're anonymous, then they are incredibly vulnerable because the government certainly knows who knows what, yes. right? The government knows yeah. that already, but we don't know. So if something were to happen yeah. to them, there is no accountability whatsoever on the public point. stage. The idea that anonymity is safer for you is something um, I've often encountered in sources for stories. And you know that, that can be true if we're dealing with state secrets. Certainly it can be the case, but people I think have, a, uh, are, have sometimes just not thought this through. If you're, if you think a, an agency of the government, the police, uh, school, something that is, is mistreating you, you, we want this out in the open because people are going to agree and they're going to take your side and they're going to want to help you and protect you. Um, yeah, I, I'm talking about, you know, much you know, lower stakes for, for national 
still very big stakes for the people involved, but um, a lot of uh, police disputes. It's like, you, no, you want you want the sheriff, even if it's a small, the smaller and pettier the official, you want this out there. It, it yeah. limits their ability to hurt you if it's out there. So you can lose your job. If yeah. That's the issue. That can happen for sure. But again, like, so. But that just so doesn't seem like sticks? a reasonable consider. Like, because in exactly. this case, you'll, are have, these people you'll have the greatest job ever if you're the one to bring forward the alien right. and my, and my sympathies are much different for someone who's just worried about losing their job. It's like you can't have it both yeah. ways. These are heroes and know this information and they're being thwarted by the government. Okay. Well, if it's just yeah. that they're worried about losing their job, well, then they're making a choice. They're yeah. making a choice to be as complicit as the government and keeping this information hidden from the public because they, they're, they're not willing to... Yeah. If, and is, we do need more protections important? for whistleblowers. I'm all about that, but... Yeah, if it's that important, it's that important. If it's not and your job is more important, then why are you asking yeah. all of us to care more than you care? Right. Right? For sure. Well, the United States Department of Defense All-Domain Anomaly Resolution Office has released a UFO hotspot map showing UFO sightings throughout the world. The map shows spots in Nagasaki and Hiroshima and Japan, the east and west coast of the United States, as well as areas of the Middle East. According to YouTuber, to YouTuber Mike Collegno, collect, excuse me if I butchered your name, it shows the data uh, Arrow was able to collect from alleged cases from 1996 mm -hmm. to 2023. Robbie, this goes against some of your critiques. It's all the desert. It's all New Mexico. Why do, why do aliens only land in Nevada yeah. or Ohio? Although they it didn't look like they're not landing in South America or Africa, probably because there's just less, less development and interest in this subject. Probably. <laughs> yeah, may, maybe. All right, we'll continue to bring whatever news exists on this uh, topic that comes out, hopefully some new news soon. Yes, and tomorrow on Rising, Jessica Burbank will be filling in for Brianna. Mm, we'll miss you. All right, be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who prefer to listen while you're on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. See you later. Bye-bye.